Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame. And I am your co-host, Roger Hudson. Today we're joined by Nicole Dahmer, a fifth-year PhD in Library and Information Science uh, student here at Western University. Hello, Nicole. How are you today? I'm great. Very happy to be here. Great, great. We're glad to have you here. We're, we're stoked for this, uh, this interview. We're a lot. Some of this topic is kind of dear to our hearts. We all have interest in this topic from uh, different avenues. So I think it's going to be an interesting talk. Mm-hmm. So uh, why don't we get started by telling us briefly uh, what your project is in the in the FIMS, FIMS department. So my research really broadly looks at the interactions between information and care. So when we think about caregiving, um, there are some elements of care that are slowly recognized as work, you know, really tangible, visible forms of work like bathing people or feeding people or, but the information that people need to use while they're caring for someone is really invisible. Um, And I've been interested in trying to figure out why that is. So to look at this invisibility of family caregivers information work, I've done four different studies. Uh, One study is interviews with family caregivers. Um, And so they are caring for someone who is living with a form of dementia and who is still living at home. And those interviews have been really amazing and, and a lot of rich data in there just to get a sense of what information they actually need to do in their everyday lives to care for someone. A second study that I did was then uh, interviewing paid senior service providers to get a sense of all the decisions that these uh, paid staff have to do um, when they're providing family caregivers with information and how those decisions ultimately impact how family caregivers find and use information. A third study uh, is looking at aging in place policies and looking at how these different policies produced by government agencies and bodies are Um, framing family caregivers' contributions to older adults who are aging in place. And then the last study was looking at academic literature, so looking at how researchers are studying family caregivers' information activities and the degree to which they are recognizing those activities as work. So it's kind of four pieces of a puzzle to get a better understanding of family caregivers' information work and why it may be invisible. That's cool. I mean, it it sounds like you... You're tackling it from all angles, like caregiver, paid caregiver, researcher, government. That's correct, yes. <laughs> I, was, I was interested in looking at how different levels, I guess, are coordinating family caregivers' experiences of their information work in their everyday lives. And it seems like you're really approaching it from, so you're, you have these qualitative interviews, mm-hmm. you're looking at existing literature that, that's already out there. And, and it's, am I correct in saying that this is a qualitative analysis of these interviews and of this literature? Are you, would you like that, to explain exactly how you I would love to, Roger. Um, so the framework that I'm using is called Institutional Ethnography, um, and it was developed by a Canadian sociologist, Dorothy okay. Smith, who is still rocking. She's 92 and she still goes to conferences and really mm-hmm. is amazing. Um, but basically, Institutional Ethnography, what it does is it privileges people's everyday experiences, and it also acknowledges people's activities as work, as labor. Uh, At the same time, though, institutional ethnography tries to understand how people's everyday experiences are coordinated by um, different institutions that they may or may not be aware of. So how different government decisions, how um, different bureaucratic decisions or things like that, how those are often invisibly coordinating our everyday experiences. So, for example, how 
the decisions that go into a, a hospital form, for example, those are made at quite a high level, but they will influence how you maybe enter into an ER and how you are able to access that healthcare. So it's for sure. kind of that simultaneous um, awareness of local level experiences, but um, kind of higher level bureaucratic government um, kind of organization decisions. Very interesting. So that's kind of framed my research, and that's why I tried to approach it from those all those different angles. And the ethnography portion, uh, what is uh, that? that It actually steps away from, even though it is called an institutional ethnography, it's not really an ethnography in a way. So it's its own kind of branch of sociology. It's more of a a critical lens on people's everyday experiences and those upper level um, influences on people's everyday experiences. But institutional ethnography does, you know, it it can be through interviews or through observation. or through textual analysis as well. Fair enough. So, I mean, is if there like a is institutional ethnography a discipline that a lot of people self-identify uh, as being part of, or is there actually like a group? Like, do you or can you be a institutional ethnographer? You can be an institutional ethnographer. Um, and I like the idea of it being kind of a club. That's pretty cool. <laughs> but it, it crosses disciplines in a way. So, um, um, they have one of their main meetings at the Society for the Study of Social Problems, and there are sociologists, there's people from public health, there's people from nursing, from education. So it's um, it, it's researchers from all different backgrounds who are interested in understanding why, why our everyday actions happen as they do. Okay, so I kind of get the feeling like the way, the, sort of the way you framed it was um, in the past or maybe still uh, the appreciation for how much how much actual work goes into being a caregiver in, in at home, uh, be it paid or, or not, mm-hmm. um, was undervalued, and and now it's becoming more valued. Um, is that is that is that correct? Um, and if so, how how so? Hmm, that's a great question. I think you know if we look at past caregiving studies. It used to really focus on mothers and children. That was a big focus of caregiving literature. And a lot of that work was invisible because it was happening in the home. So it was kind of behind closed doors. It wasn't as valued. Um, Now that, I mean, we have to confront changing, our changing demographics and the fact that there aren't enough long-term care facilities right now for um, even our current population. And there are increasing increasing numbers of, of older adults every single day. And I think it was maybe two summers ago, there's more older adults in Canada now than people under the age of 15. So I think maybe it's a, a byproduct of these changing demographics that we're starting to recognize that the current systems we have to care for older adults are, are not sustainable and they won't be adequate for upcoming and incoming cohorts of older adults. So I guess part of that is recognizing that family, slowly recognizing, I would say, that family caregivers do do a, a lot of work behind the scenes, and a lot of that is invisible. And part of my research is looking at kind of aging in place, which means living at home or in your community for as long as possible. And it's really promoted and championed by both municipal and, and provincial and federal governments because it's a very cost-effective uh, mechanism for caring for older adults. Um, at the same time, though, if older adults are going to be aging in their community um, and at home, they're going to need supports um, to be able to 
um, maintain a, a good quality of life while they're living at home. And that downloads a lot of responsibility onto family caregivers. Sure. It's a bit of a roundabout way of answering your question, I think. But I think there's a slow recognition that family caregivers are valuable. But it's, um, I think, not to the degree that they could be because there are still studies after studies that report caregiver burnout and fatigue and depression and problem sleeping and things like that. So they obviously there aren't, their needs aren't being addressed, even though they may be valued, there's still a lot of work I think that needs to be done to address their quality of life while they're trying to support the quality of life of, of an older adult. So in terms of what you uh, revealed from your interviews with these uh, family caregivers, what do you think would be the most effective um, solutions, either uh, locally or institutionally, that could mm. be put in place to, I guess, help them in caring for their family members? Well, Roger, that's a great question. <laughs> I am still in the midst of analysis. I think one of the, this is not a helpful answer whatsoever, but mm. I think one of the I think most striking conclusions that I drew was that every family caregiver was so unique and different from uh, from the other family caregivers that I, I was interviewing. Um, and so because I was um, interested in learning about family caregivers' information work, you know, I asked them a lot about, you know, where do you go to find information? How do you know that you want to trust that information? Who are you going to share that information with once you find it? How do you manage all of the information that you find? So are you storing it? digitally? Do you have a file folder? What are you doing with that? Do you translate that information to others? Are you going to share that information with the individual living with dementia? And if so, how do you decide what you're going to tell them? Mm -hmm. And so because family caregivers information practices are so complex, I was really struck by how absolutely unique each person is because they're influenced by their upbringing and their background and their professional training. So I interviewed a physiotherapist and she was very medically minded in a way. So she was always looking at PubMed and um, kind of looking more at academic literature. Whereas I also interviewed a, um, a, a former teacher. And so for her, her main goal was being very organized and everything was categorized very nicely so she could access information when she needed it and she was also aware because she was an elementary school teacher she had books about Alzheimer's that she could read to her grandchildren so that they would know what was happening with their grandfather so it was just this um everyone was just so different and so right now I'm I think that's where I'm pleasantly stuck maybe right now in trying mm. to figure out what to make of this diversity of findings it, it really seems like each, from what you explained, uh, each of the individuals are so unique in how they care for their family members and it seems like they've really taken on uh, their own type of leadership role in terms mm. of caring for their family members and they each have so much to share from their own personalized and unique experiences. Mm -hmm. Are there any, you know, sort of groups that these people you know, caregivers can get together to kind of share their experiences, maybe build off one another in, in some yeah, way like that's that? That's a great question. So actually the way I was having a lot of trouble recruiting um, family givers to take part in my study hmm. because understandably they have a lot of demands on their time. Sure. Um, so I actually ended up um, finding the majority of my participants um, at a, a dementia caregiver support group. Oh, wow. Um, so actually London is quite lucky in, in, in that we have quite a, an impressive... Uh, dementia care facility, the McCormick Home, um, where they have, uh, it's a long-term care facility for individuals living with dementia for half half of the building. And the other half of the building is set up for adult day programs so that families can bring their 
loved one who's living with dementia um, for a day program so they can sure. do activities and, and eat and things like that. And it gives the caregiver a bit of, uh, of a rest as well. But they also have amazing programming for these family caregivers and they have a support group for each different type of dementia. Wow. Um, so they have like a, Tuesday nights could be frontotemporal dementia and they even have care groups depending on if you're the spouse or if you're the um, if you're the um, son or daughter, things like that. So mm-hmm. it's really comprehensive um, programming for the families. Um, and I guess that was also another finding that really struck me. I was really expecting family caregivers to use different technologies as a key way to gain and access and share their information, like emails or websites or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think what really came through um, in the interviews was that it was kind of an it was uh, relying on other people's experiences that was most most important to them. And it was this word of mouth support group setting that was so valuable to them, even if it wasn't, even if the other uh, members in the support group didn't have a fully formed answer for them, at least they knew they understood where they were coming from. And so it was that empathy that was, was, was key for them. And it was, and technology played a much um, smaller role than I expected. I mean, uh, maybe, uh, I mean, I know that when I'm with my grandparents, like, they're, I just sort of technology averse. So it's, that's mm. when, what's the generation younger than the millennials? Z or something? Generation Z? When Generation Z is on average 80 years old and they all, like, were born and then given an iPad, mm-hmm. uh, they're going <laughs> to know technology, like, so much more fluently that, like, when they're, elderly they're going to be more you know attuned to it right now like if i go to my grandpa and i say like look this could be really useful for your every day to like things to work better if you just use this website or use this app or use this phone or use this computer he's kind of like i don't want to do anything like that i do agree it's certainly it's an, an interesting and i think a really unique time to be studying this because you do have these caregivers who i think they ranged in age from 55 to 87 so you have quite a range and and within those that age range you have uh people who are more or less um, adept at using technologies in their everyday lives but i think having that will that will change soon i i think as as incoming cohorts of caregivers and older adults are just using technology Hmm. in our everyday experiences yeah and i guess i think people who are making technology are are well aware that there's this like this demographic of people who are like struggling to use technology so they're trying to make it more like ergonomic like i remember when the first ipad came out and i mean i i like to keep up today with gadgets and technology and stuff and i remember the ad and it struck me it was not a child using an ipad Mm -hmm. the ad was uh a lady that looked to be mid to late 60s holding the ipad on the couch and using it and i think that was really uh intentional like they the apple like you know they don't a big company like that spends a lot on marketing they don't they do not do this they do not make those decisions lightly so when they decided to market directly to elderly people that was intentional um so i mean the technology maybe is getting easier for mm-hmm. for people to use or elderly s- people to use but I think part of it, though, I think part of it is it's not necessarily that older adults are technology adverse. I think it's more that they value social engagement and social connection in different ways than we're used to. And mm. for them, it I'm not sure it could be that they don't interpret technologies as being able to 
foster and, and, and create these social connections. So for them, you know, a phone call, even writing a letter or talking face to face might be more valuable for them. And it might not have anything to actually do with the technology in and of itself. There's a research, oh, sorry, there's a research um, uh, consortium in Canada called AgeWell that is really looking at kind of the intersections of aging and, and technology and health. And so I think it'll be interesting to see how all of these kind of contemporary experiences that we have now and how we engage with each other often digitally will influence how we experience social participation in everyday life when we're much older, as we are in hovercrafts and things like that. <laughs> Very soon. And I think this might be a good a good time to transition into some of your later studies in terms of the policies, mm. or like the institutional uh, in impacts on uh, caregivers in that sense. So I've just been um, writing up the policy analysis, and it's been really it's been really interesting in looking at at how these policies are are framing aging, later life, and and, um, and the work that happens. So really, families are not really existent in any of these aging in place policies. So in a lot of these policies, the focus is solely on the older adult. And so there's this underlying assumption also that older adults are able and are um, well off enough and are well physically and cognitively as well to be able to age in place. So there weren't any indications or a, um, kind of uh, concessions for older adults who might be living with a cognitive impairment who also want to age in place those policies don't seem to exist yet, which is troubling because there are older adults who are maybe of, um, who have some sort of cognitive impairment or who are of lower socioeconomic status and who are in different types of housing and still want to age in place there, but they're not receiving the correct or proper or helpful supports yet. Hmm. So it was really a, a focus on the older adult and almost invisibility of family caregivers altogether in these policies. And when they did appear, it was for what they could give the older adult. So um, making sure that they were aware of events or things like that. And so there wasn't an acknowledgement of family caregivers as possibly being a support or a guide for the older adult who's aging in place. And not to say that the older adult is reliant on these family caregivers, but that there's not an acknowledgement that there are a network of other people in older adults' lives that can be and enriching support for them to age in place. And can you just give maybe an example of what some of these policies might be that focus oh, more exclusively on the older adult? Sure. So um, I looked at, for example, the City of London. Actually, we were the first city in Canada to be declared or named an age-friendly city or designated as an age-friendly city with the World Health Organization. What exactly does that mean? That's really cool. It is very cool. I didn't really know. It just worked out really nicely that I ended up here in London, Ontario. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, age-friendly cities, um, if you are part of the age-friendly city network with the World Health Organization, you're making a commitment um, to make your city more inclusive um, for all ages. So it's not necessarily just for older adults, but it's making it more um, accessible and inclusive. So it might be um, looking at how maybe transit might need to be revamped or put uh, more routes or things like that. It's even putting more um, benches in the park so that people can have breaks when they need to. Or it's even something simple as um, putting uh, handles on park benches so that older adults can get up more easily uh, out of their benches when they're sitting down and then getting up. So it's just um, a commitment to be aware of making sometimes just even small changes that make everyone's lives a little bit easier so that they're able to enjoy life in the city more 
I'd like to actually um, touch back on on what you were saying before um, about sort of non-recognize. You were saying about the policy. There's nothing in the policy per se that recognizes like the what resources uh, within the community and the family are there. They just say like, here's an, an elderly person, and here's it's all about them and not really mm -hmm. who's around them. So um, uh, kind of made me think about a circumstance that might be challenging. Uh, whereby determining both like on your family level and the, the policy level whose responsibility is it when it's quite a burden to mm. to go in and help the elderly because I can imagine let's say you have three siblings somewhere and uh, all of a sudden you really need uh, you know a lot of time to take care of the parent so whose responsibility is it let's say none of them want to do it is, is it actually like do they actually have a responsibility to do it? Or now does the government have to come in? Like, so who whose responsibility is it? And is there challenges determining who's a responsibility mm. within the family and on the government side? That's a really great question. I'm not sure I can answer that right now. I imagine it's those are a lot of questions that are even being asked in elder law, for example. Um, a lot of challenges That's in a that real area. Thing? Yes. Yeah. Oh. Elder law is huge, especially because there's a lot of elder abuse and things like that. And so oh, okay. um, that's an area of, of of law. And I'm sure it's becoming larger, especially because um, if you look at older adults who are living with dementia, they sometimes have to give up their um, kind of power of attorney. So another family member will assume um, power of attorney for that person. So that's another area of elder law. But I, I'm really not sure how that would work out because it usually does land on to say just one sole sibling. And it'll usually be, statistically, it'll be the woman because it's very gendered. Um, but I'm not sure how, just because family's available, I'm not sure if that means that they necessarily are forced to by different government bodies to mm -hmm. take care. That's a great question. I might look into that. And if I may just hop yeah. in, like maybe like this helps out with, with the question, like would uh, this elderly care be covered under government health care in Canada where we have the land of the free health care? Yes. <laughs> there are definitely some um, services that are covered. The In London, it, was, it used to be called the CCAC, the Community Care Access Centre, which just became the LIN the local integrated health network. Anyways, these are individuals that will come into your home um, and will assess you for different um, services. So if you might need like an occupational therapist, you might need a physiotherapist, or you might need someone to come in and give you a bath once a week, or for example. So there are government um, services set up to come in, assess your needs, and they also assess, they do assess what supports that you already have available. And based on that, they will dictate what you are eligible for in the home. So like even a like a raised toilet seat or like different, different. Uh, Sounds like they probably would take it into account if they come in, if Lynn comes in and they and they, they see there's like two siblings living at home and they're 31, but they're like living in the house, like they could probably help. I think these are questions we're definitely going to have to be grappling with, especially like families now are really geographically displaced. Sorry. So, yeah. you know, I live far away from my, my parents sure. right now. And so how... Does that necessarily mean my siblings who are still in that province are, are going to have to take mm. care of my parents? So I think it's it's a great question, and I think yeah. it's one that is has many nuances to it. I didn't want to run out of time to talk about this. So I really want to bring this okay. part up. So we were going to talk, we mentioned now our government, we're kind of happy here with like some mm -hmm. free health care. We think that, I guess, Canada can say that health care is a right here. 
and that's why that's how our kind of policy is for now hopefully for now let's not jinx (laughs) it right it's staying it's staying like that for now but um have you looked at like what maybe other countries do it and i wanted to bring this up because you told me you just had like kind of a cool adventure in another country so maybe tell us about that and maybe what you learned about how other countries do it and maybe um so i was i was really fortunate so from january to may 2nd um i was in sweden and norway as a visiting researcher so i was in three different universities Uppsala university um, which is just north of stockholm lund university which is at the south of sweden and then i was in oslo at oslo met and it was amazing. Um, I was able to go to these three different universities and give presentations about my research and to learn what, what they're doing in their faculties as well, and also just have a different work environment to work on my own thesis work. I was mainly in library and information science or kind of cultural studies departments while I was there. So I I wish I would have had maybe more experience to engage with or interact with more dementia care departments but i do know you know the the first kind of dementia friendly village it was created in in europe and it's a village where is that the netherlands that's correct yeah. yes so, so they are definitely minded to providing supports maybe in a more holistic way and i think their health care is such that it, it is much more comprehensive from i think birth to end of life if you will but um that's something i'm just doing some reading up on now but from what I was hearing, just even from other students um, who were having older parents or uh, older relatives, for example, they de- did seem to have a lot of home care that would come in to a greater extent than we might hear. Um, so I think we're doing a, a great job, but I think there's always room for, for improvement, especially as, as there are just so many more older adults coming into being. I think that's a great answer. <laughs> that's the way we yeah, want it. Roger, do you have a burning question? Well, no burning question. I just think that should always be the goal, right? Is to always strive for the best that we can be, strive mm-hmm. for the improvement. And if there's other countries or other cultures that can, you know that we can learn from, or mm-hmm. in, in, yeah, I think that's great. I idea. think we're pretty lucky in academia sometimes that we are able to make these trips and and visit other countries and, and learn from others. So, so I mean, I wanted to ask, um, kind of uh, squeeze in last question. Um, uh, we we're t- we've been talking a lot about the well-being of of elderly and their caregivers, but how about your well-being? <laughs> how are you doing? And what's it like as a grad student in FIMS? I mean, it, it seems incredible. I mean, <laughs> I FIMS is such a unique place. I'm in my fifth year, so it's definitely kind of reaching the end of my tenure there. Um, but I've been really lucky. I have like an amazing supervisor who's really supportive, um, and we really have. Uh, We've really worked hard among students to develop a, a community where we're, um, even though we're at different departments, so there's library and information science, there's media studies, and there's health information science, um, we work together, we lunch together and things like that. So we're share, able to share ideas all the time. And, um, and we're really lucky to have a brand new building that has really, it's amazing how much a change of space can also foster this, um, this community as well. So things are quite good at FIMS right now. We also have a brand new dean coming in in January, but I will, knock on wood, hopefully be be out of here by that time. But uh, <laughs> I'm really excited for this uh, this new new dean coming in. So FIMS is great. I'd like to thank you very much, uh, Nicole, uh, for joining us today. Where can people get a hold of you or if they want to like find out more about your stuff? Do you have like a website or a Twitter? Yeah. Oh, if anyone has questions, I would love to hear from you. You can find me at at N Delmer, D A L. M-E-R. 
fantastic. And this has been a production of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. Once again, we were joined by Nicole Dahmer. Thank you very much. Uh, you can catch us every Tuesday at 6 p.m. at uh, or on CHRW at 94.9 FM. And uh, you can email us if you'd like to get involved with the show at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Check out any of our episodes online at gradcast.ca. Thank you all very much for listening and see you next week. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.